You're listening to View from the Back Row, part of the Front Row Network and NPR Illinois' Community Voices. This podcast looks at movies and TV through the lens of inclusion and representation of disabled characters and performers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of View from the Back Row. Um, I am your host, Steve Sykes, and whereas we normally take a look at inclusion and representation uh, in the worlds of TV and film on the show. Uh, Today, we're actually gonna be looking at uh, the printed word. And I am very, very pleased to introduce to you um, the author of a new novel um, entitled One for All. And it is a updated uh, take on the Three Musketeers and um, it's a great read, and I'm excited uh, to talk to the author about it. The author is Lily Lanoff. Uh, Lily, thank you so much for joining View from the Back Row. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to get to talk with you and all your listeners. Fantastic. Um, uh, so how did the novel One for All uh, come about? Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So. I like to joke with people uh, about the one for all moment for me because uh, us writers are always trying to explain to people that we don't have light bulb moments of inspiration, that things don't just strike us out of the head, over the head and we go, oh my goodness, here's a fully formed novel that we can now write. It's a lot of staring at a blank page or an empty word document and trying and begging the words to manifest themselves onto the page but for one for all and and I don't know if I'll ever have this experience again it was very much a light bulb moment I was on submission with another book also with um, a disabled main character and an almost entirely disabled main um, disabled cast of characters Uh, I was on submission to editors and I was speaking with my agents. It was towards the end of the year, maybe in December. Um, And we were talking about new project ideas. And I don't know who brought up the idea of retellings, but as soon as somebody said retelling, the Three Musketeers popped into my mind. And I actually had to say, I'm sorry, I need to hang up the phone right now because I need to write this down. And I opened up a notebook and I wrote one for all at the very top and I started writing. And it was, it, it, it sounds magical and it felt magical at the moment and it still feels magical now. I don't think I'll ever have that experience again. I, I know that deep down, I know that it was less of a light bulb moment and more all those years of fencing because I'm a fencer and all those years of loving movies like The Princess Bride and Mulan and The Man in the Iron Mask. but in the moment, it was a light bulb moment. <laughs> that's that's great. Uh, I wish that I had more light bulb moments like <laughs> that. Um, now, uh, when do, let, let's back up a little bit and get into uh, your uh, career as a writer. Uh, mm-hmm. When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer and, and how did that come about? Right, so I've wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. Um, probably since before I knew what the title of author meant, but I knew that I wanted to be the person who 
created the stories that I read in books and that were read to me and that were told to me. And I was that little girl, the one who walks around with a notebook underneath one arm everywhere and a book underneath the other. And I would tell anybody I met that I was going to be a writer and they would say, oh, that's so nice for you because you know, I'm five, I'm six. And then, you know, I'm 10 and I'm saying, I'm going to be a writer. And then I'm 15, I'm going to be a writer. And all of a sudden people start going, oh, wait, she, <laughs> she still wants to be a writer and it never changed. Um, and I'm so incredibly lucky to have found what I'm passionate about and what I wanted to do from such a young age. That's great. That's great. Um, now, uh, you uh, are a writer and a fencer, and we'll get to that in a second mm -hmm. because that fascinates me. Um, but you have a disability, um, an, a disability that uh, can be invisible, um, but is nonetheless very um, difficult to, to come to, to grips with. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your disability? Yes. So I have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is POTS for short. Uh, it's a condition that falls underneath the umbrella condition of dysautonomia, which is pretty much just um, a dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system in the body. So stuff that our body does that we don't necessarily think about doing, that it does automatically for a lot of people, it doesn't do for some people. So that refers to, could refer to breathing or heart rate or blood pressure, just anything that's going on in your body that you're not actively thinking about doing. Um, and with POTS, pretty much uh, when you stand up, your body doesn't maintain homeostasis. So all your blood usually rushes to your hands and your feet and the extremities and when that happens, your blood pressure drops and your heart uh, beats incredibly quickly to try to get the blood pressure back up. So when you have the combination of a very low blood pressure and a very high heart rate, you get symptoms like dizziness or fainting, um, headaches, uh, brain fog, nausea, pretty much every single medical symptom that you can think of somebody with POTS has had before. It's mm most similar doctors have said to the symptoms of chronic heart failure. Uh, and even though it does manifest itself most strongly when you stand up, usually it, those symptoms are persistent. So the stuff like brain fog and nausea, um, you might not be fainting if you're sitting down or lying down, but you're still feeling its effects. Now your uh, protagonist in One for All has, uh, although she wouldn't have known it um, back in, in uh, uh, the um, period in which it's written, but she has uh, POTS. And um, it's interesting to, reading your description of the struggles that Tanya goes through, uh, it's obvious that you write from a place of experience. Um, how has uh, POTS have, have, uh, challenged you uh, both uh, personally and professionally? See, this is such an interesting question because it requires me to think back to over a decade ago when I was first diagnosed, uh, which feels like an entire lifetime ago because, I mean, when, when you're 14 
and you're just starting high school and you're just starting to figure out who you are and how to interact with the world. And then you're given a new diagnosis and your body isn't really doing what it's supposed to be doing or what you need it to be doing or want it to be doing. Um, it creates a lot of issues. Uh, I think that, you know, being a teenager is difficult enough. <laughs> Starting high school is difficult enough. When you have a condition that, um, and to be fair, POTS is much more well-known today than it was uh, a decade ago, uh, primarily because um, many long COVID patients are being diagnosed with POTS, with POTS because um, POTS usually does uh, come after um, a viral uh, infection or mm. a number of other situations, but that's one, one of the causes of POTS. Uh, so I was trying to, you know, navigate high school and navigate this body that was failing me. Uh, and it's incredibly difficult to explain to other teenagers as a teenager who barely understands the diagnosis herself to explain to other teenagers, oh no, I look, and I'm looking quotation marks, I look fine, but I'm actually sick, but I'm, I'm, I'm not fine. Um, there was a lot of, uh, doubt. And I think that any, any, uh, buddy with, um, a chronic illness or an invisible disability will know this, or will have experienced this. And, um, there's, um, a doubt that, uh, you're actually telling the truth that your symptoms are real. And to be fair, that also is true of people, people who have visible disabilities also experience that it's just in a different way. Um, yeah, as a wheelchair user myself, um, it's a little bit easier for me because my um, disability is more obvious, but uh, uh, yours is not. And uh, that I, I, I see what you're saying about uh, you could be doubting yourself and you, you run into doubt from others about your condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I think that one of the most poignant memories for me um, was uh, getting pulled off my high school's elevator and being told it was because I didn't look like I belonged there. Mm. Um, and I had, I had my elevator pass. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and it's, and it's hard when everybody else in the elevator are, you know, kids who sprained their ankles while skiing and they're in crutches and they'll be there for a month and then they'll no longer need to use the elevator um, or have visible disabilities and being there for myself and having to advocate for myself and saying, no, I am supposed to be here. Uh, it's exhausting mm -hmm. on top of the exhaustion that comes with chronic illness. Um, and I think that, uh, as far as, as far as, um, it's impacted me professionally. Um, I've been very lucky in the sense that my dream job as an author, uh, I am my own boss. I mean, of course I, uh, am submitting my books to my publisher and my publishing house. But if I have a bad day, a bad pain flare day or potsy day, I can say, okay, I'm going to just not write today. <laughs> um, and I'm very lucky 
to be able to do that and to be able to say that it's an, an incredible privilege. Um, coaching fencing is a bit more difficult because you don't really have that wiggle room. Um, but you know, you learn, you learn ways around it. Uh, I think that, um, and, and it's also helpful because I coach at my old fencing club with my coach who saw me through my diagnosis when I was a teenager, um, and used to give me, uh, private lessons on his rolling office chair. And we would put that on the fencing strip and I would take lessons like that when I was too dizzy to stand. So I have, um, both my work environments as an author and as a fencing coach, um, both, uh, my employers are very much aware of my condition and have been for a very long time, um, and know the accommodations and the accessibility needs that I need. Great. Um, now, um, for those that are interested in the nuts and bolts of what goes in to writing a novel, can you tell us a little bit about your writing process and specifically how it took shape for this novel? I think that ever, writing every novel is a different experience. And I think that I, I love writing novels just for that reason. I think that if writing felt familiar, it would get boring. And then why, why, would, why would you want to write if it were boring? Um, there's something really wonderful in the discovery of writing and discovering how a novel wants to be written. Uh, so one for all, uh, was a difficult novel to write, not necessarily because of the subject matter, because I had all of the background. I mean, aside from the fact that I'm not a secret musketeer in 17th century <laughs> fantastical France dueling and ball gowns, that part, that part I didn't have experience in, but the fencing and having pots and the feelings and doubt and internalized ableism that uh, I experienced because of POTS and do experience because of POTS. I, all, I had that experience. So that wasn't difficult to write about. Uh, the plot of One for All itself is incredibly complex. There are many subplots and they're all twisting and turning together. So when I was drafting One for All, I also happened to be a senior in college. So I was writing One for All when I should have been working on my senior thesis. Uh, and I was jumping around a lot in time chronologically. So I think I wrote the first few pages and then I would skip ahead to all the dual scenes because those are the fun scenes for me to write. I love writing dual scenes. Um, I wrote the uh, kind of final dual scene, which people who have read One for All will know exactly what I'm talking about. I wrote that one scene, I think, it was the second scene that I wrote and it's very similar to the first draft scene. It, it didn't change too much. Um, and I didn't really start writing it in earnest until after I graduated. And once I did so, I was able to fill in the gaps <laughs> that I had skipped over. Uh, and then I worked on it with my agent and so much of writing is revising and is editing. And after a very long editorial and revision process, one for all, we were able to put it out into the world. Fantastic. Um, what uh, challenges did you have, uh, if any, getting the book pub published? So, <laughs> 
Um, I laugh, I laugh because it's, it's a question that I think is really important. <laughs> um, but it's also, it's also an incredibly difficult question to answer because, um, and, and not only because I think that there is such a lack of transparency in publishing. And, uh, you know, as authors who are on submission, most, a lot of us are encouraged not to talk about it while we're on submission because you don't want edit, other editors to know that they haven't gotten your book or that they, haven't, they weren't submitted to in the first round. So there's all this mire and obfuscation around it. Um, and a lot of that lack of transparency contributes to an incredible amount of ableism. Um, and I don't think I really recognized, I mean, I, I knew that I was going to face ableism while on submission with One for All because I'd already been on submission with another novel. But the responses that I got to that novel, the rejections, they weren't, they weren't, um, if, there were, if, if the rejections were prompted by ableism, it was at least subtle. It was at least couched in other words. Um, with One for All, around 60 to 70% of the responses that we got were, we love this book, we love Lily, we love the writing style, but we just don't know if it's marketable or we just don't know if there's enough readership. And first of all, girls dueling in ball gowns, gender bent three musketeers, that's inherently marketable. So the first few times that I received a response like that, I took it at face value. And then once more of those passes started rolling in, I started to realize what not marketable or not enough readership was code for. And it's code for, we don't think that a book about a disabled girl is going to sell well, or we don't want to take on this book about a disabled girl. Uh, and it was heartbreaking because I, it, it even got to the point where, you know, there were editors who, some editors were more subtle in their ableism. Some editors were, were, were uh, not, not as subtle. Um, and uh, there were suggestions of, uh, that editors would, would have wanted the book if the main character were from a different marginalized background. And that was crushing to me because this book is so entrenched in my own experiences of my condition. So I spent, I want to say, I think it was a year and a month on submission with One for All, which surprises a lot of people when I tell them that because um, I was told by so many author friends right when I went on submission, you don't have to worry, Lily, this is going to sell in a week. And to be fair, nothing is guaranteed in publishing. Also, publishing is very slow, so you never really know what's going to happen. But I think that, you know, it took a year and a half to thankfully find my editor, Melissa Warden, who is no longer at FSG Books, which makes me very sad every day. But um, it took me a year and a half to a year and a month to find Melissa, um, to find an editor who was really excited about a book about a chronically ill girl and not a book that was set in contemporary times um, because there are there are books that 
have chronic illness and disability representation, few though, though these books might be, but a lot of them are in the contemporary genre and because there's this pervasive idea that books with disabled characters um, in historical settings or in fantastical set, set, settings, like they can't work or that disabled people wouldn't exist in those settings. Um, so it's really important that those books exist. Uh, so it took, yeah, a year and a month. Um, mm. And I think that um, it, it, that's one of the reasons why I've been so open about trying to mentor disabled authors and chronically ill authors who are currently on submission to editors because I don't want any other author to go through what I went through because it's unacceptable. Um, and it editors shouldn't be able to say those things and write those things just because there's a lack of transparency in publishing. Mm. Well, I, I here to tell you, um, it's this is such a, a great book and an important book because it, it it speaks to empowerment not only for uh, disabled people but for young women. Um, your lead character is such a strong woman, and uh, she has to navigate through expected roles and uh, other societal expectations. So. Um, it's just such a positive message for uh, multiple audiences. So I am glad that you persevered and, and got the, the book published. Now, uh, you were talking about fencing, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. Fencing is heavily featured in, uh, as you would expect from a retelling uh, of The Three Musketeers. But the scenes are written so um, vibrantly because uh, your your experience shows through. But tell me a little bit about how you got into fencing. So I was a very uncoordinated child. <laughs> I still trip over air frequently, uh, but I did so more when I was a kid. And my parents thought a great way to solve that would be to help me gain some coordination and what's the answer for that sports uh and they also knew that i liked um being on teams so they knew that team sports would be a good idea for me and when i say i tried almost every sport ever invented i tried swimming golf horseback riding ice skating soccer basketball, softball, track and field, the list goes on. Uh, I'm not very good <laughs> at any of those things. Uh, and I was, at, uh, I was at a summer arts camp. And during that summer arts camp, during lunch, uh, they, were, they decided that it would be a good idea to bring in people who had different professions to talk to us campers. And I was, I think, nine at the time, nine or 10. And one day they brought in a fencer. Now, this is very funny because fencing is not a professional sport. There may be four, five tops professional fencers in the entire world. You don't get money. You don't get paid money to fence. But this woman came in and she was a fencer. And I looked up at her and I thought about Mulan and I thought about the Princess Bride and I thought, and I said, that 
that is what I want to do. And I went home that day and I said, mom, I want to do this. And to her credit, she said, great, I'll look up fencing clubs in the area. Uh, and, you know, you wouldn't think that clumsiness would be helped by giving a nine or a 10 year old a sword. But for my, in my case, I, it did. And uh, I started with a friend. I was the only girl in my class when I started. Um, it was me and like 11 or 12 other 12 little boys. Um, and there was a lot of, I don't remember this, but I'm told that there was a lot of the little boys running around pretending to be um, in Star Wars and me just kind of very frustrated and just above it all, just, you know, hitting them with my sword and going, okay, I won the bout, I won the bout, I won the bout, next, <laughs> next, next. And uh, so I knew that I wanted to have a chance to compete. Um, so, and at national levels, uh, competitions are split into men's and women's. And uh, I knew that I needed to be in a class with other girls if I wanted to have a chance to compete. So uh, we looked into other fencing clubs and the only class that was open was for a completely different sword. Um, there are three different swords, foil, epee, and saber. Um, and I started out with foil as most fencers do. And the class that was open was saber. Uh, and I switched and saber is unlike anything else. It is fast paced. It is, I think somebody described it as as chess at 100 miles per hour, uh, the, uh, a sword, a saber is one of the fastest moving pieces of athletic equipment up there with rifle, like bullets from rifles and arrows from uh, bows. It is fast. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I was incredibly frustrated by it a lot of the time. Uh, and it proved frustrating in different ways once I was diagnosed with POTS and once I became chronically ill, but it also took on a new meaning for me when I became chronically ill. So it's, it's hard, you know, when, you know, you don't want to go to practice and then all of a sudden, it's not that you don't want to go to practice. It's that you're at practice and you're sitting on the sidelines because you're too dizzy to stand up and you're watching your teammates fence and you can't. Hmm. So it became, <laughs> it, it took on this new meaning of me of like, I wasn't just fencing against my opponents. I was fencing against pots. <laughs> I was fencing, I was getting up and fencing and fighting against my chronic illness. That's, that's <clears throat> that is, that's powerful. Um, now, uh, you still compete in fencing and you, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you're a coach. Uh, what do you think you bring to the table as a fencing coach? Right. So I will note that um, I'm just now getting, I, I, I have had to take a hiatus from competing because of COVID. Um, so I'm getting back into competing, hopefully very soon, um, which I'm excited about. Um, but in terms of coaching, um, which I'm also getting back into, I took a hiatus, not just because of COVID, but because I was getting my master's and creative writing prose fiction um, at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England. So I mm. was a little far away from my fencing club uh, in, uh, in the States. But I think that as a coach, um, there's a real 
culture and athletics of silence surrounding disability and chronic illness. Um, I remember I was watching uh, the Paralympics the other day and uh, one of the anchors referred to the Olympics as the non-disabled Olympics. And I remember being just so flummoxed because so many athletes are disabled. When you think about it, there's probably a higher percentage of disabled athletes than there are disabled people among the general population. Because if we think about just long-term injuries, long-term chronic pain, um, uh, chronic head trauma, um, it, and a lot of these athletes don't like talking about it in terms of disability. It's always something to overcome. It's always something to persevere. It's always some, something that you leave behind. Whereas I, I think about POTS and I know I think most people in the disability and the chronic illness community feel this way. I don't overcome POTS. Like my POTS is still there after I fence about. So when I say I'm fencing against POTS, I know it's always going to be there. It's not like, oh, one map out. Now I don't have POTS. Great. It's still there. Um, and I think that talking openly about disability and chronic illness has given me an incredible opportunity as a coach because I think that um, one, my students and fencers, I think feel more comfortable coming up to me and letting me know if they feel like they have an injury or if they're having a headache or they just need a break. Um, they just need a drink of water. <laughs> you know, I, I'm like, please, I'm always telling my kids drink more water. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that also it's just made them a lot more open and, um, they've tried and they're able to trust me with information about their own lives and seek out advice from me, um, for their personal lives, because I've been so open about something that is, has been very difficult in my um, in my life, um, being chronically ill and being disabled also means that you're incredibly adaptive because you have to be, you have to learn new ways of doing things. And the way that things worked yesterday might not work today. So you have to figure out a new way of doing it. So that also is applicable to coaching in the sense that, um, I'm a lot more, um, adaptive to situations. If a certain approach isn't working for a certain student, I'm able to switch up how I'm coaching them or how I'm teaching them. Um, I'm a lot more observant because of my chronic illness. Um, I also, you know, at the end of the day, I, of course, I want my kids to fence well and to compete well. But at the end of the day to me, I just want to make sure that they're having fun and being safe. Um, and I can't, oh gosh, I can't tell you how many times when I'm leading the stretching circle, I have to tell them, do not stretch to the point of pain. It is not a stretch if you are in pain. Um, but I, I just want them to find something to love about the sport. I hope that they can find something to love about the sport. And it's not necessarily going to be the same reason that I love the sport because I mean, those are very specific reasons. Um, but fencing to me is so much more than a sport and I really hope that the students that I coach the fencers that I coach that they can feel the same way about fencing that it's more than a sport to them 
Well, I feel like your students are very lucky to have you uh, with your, your background and uh, the spirit you display. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about uh, your advocacy for the disabled community, both in general and in the uh, creative community. Um, you were a featured uh, rooted in rights advocate. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Right. So, I was approached by Elena Leary, um, and they are an incredible powerhouse, um, and now do a lot of management of We Need Diverse Books, which is an incredible organization devoted to um, increasing diverse representation, both on the author side and on in terms of like on the page representation in children's literature. Um, whether that's young adult, middle grade, chapter books or picture books. Um, and I was approached by them about the possibility of being a featured activist. And at that point, uh, I had really only just started my journey as an activist. Um, I don't think I ever really considered myself an activist or even considered the potential for myself to be an um, activist um, until uh, I published an op-ed with the Washington Post Outlook, which was about the Red Band Society, which was a short-lived TV show. Um, and about a few uh, chronically ill, disabled, um, terminally ill kids living in a hospital. And I wrote about it within the context of my experience with hospitals as somebody who is chronically ill. Um, and I don't think I knew it at the time, but when the article was published, there was just such a huge, overwhelming response of, thank you for bringing this up. I wish that more people talked about this. Uh, and a lot of people who were like, wow, I didn't know anybody else who had POTS. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh, wait, so the words that I write can also be a form of activism. By sharing my story and by creating awareness, I can advocate not only for myself, but for others as well. So at that point, I was starting to write um, books with disabled main characters and I had received representation for the, um, the book that I had previously mentioned um, that I was on submission with before One for All. Um, and I thought it was, I do, I still do think it's a very important book and I hope it finds a home one day. Uh, and I was hoping that it would bring more awareness to disability in general, but also provide more representation because this was back in 2016. So there was even less disability representation in literature than there is today. And there's not a lot today. So mm -hmm. that's saying something. Um, and uh, Elena and I talked about uh, my advocacy work on that point, but also my academic work because I am a huge nerd. Um, and I say that with pride, I, I, I love being a nerd. Um, I think that any author or writer who tells you they're not a nerd is lying <laughs> um, because we sit around all day and create worlds and you know create characters in our minds and put them on the page. That's, that's nerdy. Absolutely. Um, and um, 
one of my um, academic areas of study is the societal policing of disabled motherhood and the ways that the medical profession, um, the government, uh, families, just at every single level, we do our very best as a society to make disabled women think that they can't and should not be mothers mm. in any sense of the word. So I was doing a lot of um, academic research into that and writing papers about that. Um, and I had an excerpt of that paper published via the Disability Visibility Project with Alice Wong. Um, and I also talked to Elaine about that. It's something that I hope to um, further study in a graduate program in disability studies, which I've had to put on the back burner for a little bit while I was at, <laughs> at grad school for creative writing and doing all this other stuff. But I do want to go back to grad school specifically for disability studies and hopefully continue that. Um, and this was all before um, I founded Disabled Kiblet Writers, um, which I think is probably, I mean, I, I, I don't like saying, you know, it's the highlight of my activist, like, like I'm the most proud of this because I have so much more to do. I have so many more plans. <laughs> um, but uh, Disabled Kiblet Writers is a group of now, I believe we have 410 members, which is incredible. It hasn't even been three years um, of disabled writers of Kidlet uh, in any sense. Um, it's not a gate kept group. Um, so anybody who self identifies as chronically ill, disabled, neurodiverse, uh, et cetera, they are welcome in the group. Uh, and it originally started because of, again, back to that discussion of the lack of transparency in publishing, I was, and I'm still in a small group chat of a few other disabled authors, one of whom is Melissa C, who's, um, debut novel you meet and our heartstrings comes out in May which is next month which is very exciting um, and at that point I was the only agented author in the group uh, and in that little group and we had talked about wouldn't it be nice to have a group of just disabled authors disabled kidlet authors where we could talk about all the very specific issues that disabled kidlet authors are facing right now because when, when you're having a, a bad migraine and you can't look at the computer screen, which means that you can't use that set aside time and that was your writing time, mm -hmm. other authors can sympathize to a certain extent, but other disabled and chronically ill authors, they get it. They get it when, when you talk about what it means to not have enough spoons to write or what or you know what like a pain flare is preventing you from writing or um you know facing ableist rejections and what that means and i kept we kept on thinking okay somebody will create the group it's fine you just have to wait around and i received a pass very similar to the one that i described earlier to you in that you know oh we love this book we just don't think it's marketable and I just thought to myself, you know what? Uh, I don't care. I don't care at this point. I know that I'm not an author with name recognition. I know that I don't have, most people have no idea who I am. 
I'm going to create this group. And I thought that maybe it would have 10 members, maybe 20 if we were lucky. And, that, and like I said, now we have 410 and there are New York Times bestsellers in the group. And there are authors who are just starting to think about writing or just, you know, have written their first, the first few words on the page. Um, and it's been an incredible resource, both for seeking out advice um, and just not just advice, but solace and solidarity in an industry that has really pushed us out or tried, done their best to push us out. Um, but it's also been an incredible way to celebrate group successes. And we've had so many group successes lately, like the, the number of um, disabled authors who have just uh, become agented or have just announced their debut book deals. It's a really exciting time and the group is growing and um, we're developing new mentorship ideas now. And um, it's just, it's an incredible privilege to even be a part of the group, let alone have been the founder. Um, and I still, and I still moderate, I'm still the group moderator and it's, it's, you know, it's a job that I love. Um, it's a difficult job, but I love it. Uh, and, um, yeah, it, 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 in terms of activism, it, it is like, it is, pro it's, hopefully it grows, um, even further, but, but if it stayed the size it was now, I would still be incredibly, privileged and incredibly lucky and incredibly proud. It's wonderful that you are enabling these authors because there are so many good stories out there and gripping stories and um, powerful stories that that need to be told and can enrich so many lives in the process. And by your um, helping those voices get amplified, um, that's fantastic work. And uh, as far as you're not being a household name, um, boy, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll change that um, <laughs> with one for all because it is it is fantastic. I was describing it uh, to one of my friends um, as kind of a mix in style between Alexander Dumas and Jane Austen. And they said, Oh, I want to see I want to read it now. <laughs> and I, So um, I, I think there is an audience out there uh, for what you write about and, and your voice. So um, now let me ask you um, back to one for all. Um, are there any thoughts or plans about uh, telling that story in, in other media? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or is that something that you can't comment on because I- uh, I, I, if, if I had any news about that, I would not be able to comment about it until it was public knowledge. Well, let me just so. tell you that I think it would be great. So, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think you would want to revisit these characters in a, in a future novel? Oh, I would love to write a sequel to One for All. Um, it's currently a standalone. It was sold as a standalone. It was written as a standalone. Um, I would be lying if I said I didn't have a, a title for a sequel and a synopsis and a few pages already written because I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, I, 
it's hard to get into without spoiling too much of one for all, but I do think that it's very important to continue Tanya's story on the page because, and, and I mean, this is in the cover copy and the synopsis, Tanya's journey is very much one of overcoming, overcoming ableism. She's not overcoming disability, she's overcoming ableism, whether that's internalized ableism or ableism from society. And um, her journey of self-love and learning to love herself, I really would relish the opportunity to write a novel where we have Tanya, this main character who loves herself and like spend more time in that space mm. um, and not have, um, and just to see, you know, joy, disabled joy, chronically ill joy, um, I think is really important. Um, the thing about sequels is that it's always up to the publisher. So if listeners want a sequel to One for All, the best way to make that happen is to purchase copies of One for All, tell your friends about One for All, request it at your local library, uh, anything, rate it on Amazon, on Goodreads, on Barnes and Noble, and all the review sites, whatever you can do tell more people, you know, post about it on social media. Uh, the best way to get a sequel is with sales from the first book. So I, I don't know what's going to happen yet. And I can't, I really, I really don't, but I really do hope that I have a chance to revisit Tanya and her world. The, the, uh, the early reviews uh, have been overwhelmingly positive. Um, so I think uh, you, you're making some good headway there. <laughs> um, you know, I can't help uh, notice you have a copy uh, there behind you in the background. Yes. Um, I saw uh, that you had done a photo shoot where you were kind of in character as Tanya. Um, what yes. was that experience like? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So it's, it's so wonderful that you brought this up um, because... Uh, what ended up happening was, is that it's really all thanks to Jacqueline Ferkins, who is another YA author. Um, I cannot recommend her books enough, um, not only because she's a very generous human being, but also because she's a wonderful author, um, but she's also a costume designer and professor. And just the, the, the clothing that she creates is just, it's, I, I don't even have words for how incredible it is. And towards the beginning of the pandemic, when uh, she wasn't really teaching as much in person and having that opportunity, she started up this idea of book dresses and book cover dresses and uh, started designing dresses based on book covers and then giving away the dress on Instagram with copies of the book. Uh, and if uh, listeners want, they can go to her Instagram page. Uh, she has so many book dresses and they're all gorgeous. And so they're not all dresses. Some of them are coats. Some of them are, you know, uh, suits. They're just, oh, they're just all so gorgeous. And um, we had connected before One for All sold. And when One for All sold, she's like, remember to get in touch with me after your cover is revealed. Um, and when it was revealed, I touched base with her and she said, you know, um, I've never done this before and I'm never going to do it again, but you do look so much like 
Tanya on your main cover. Uh, would you want me to maybe make the book dress for you and have you use it for promotion? And I mean, I don't know anybody who, I know, I don't know anyone who would say no to that. I mean, I was, yes, please send me a ball gown. That would be awesome. Uh, and she made me a ball, she made me Tanya's dress. I mean, it's not exactly Tanya's dress as it is on the cover. We, we uh, collaborated a lot and talked a lot about um, using 17th century design elements, but also incorporating a bit of the fantastic because, I mean, One for All isn't straight historical fiction. It is historical fantasy. Um, so the dress on the cover is not period accurate because mm. it's fantasy. Um, and so we wanted that to, that element in the book dress itself. So um I got to do a little photo shoot with the book dress. And one of the fun things about being a fencer is that when you're, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and you go to lots of regional events, a lot of the time, uh, I, don't, I don't know really why this is, but uh, the organizers will give out swords as prizes. So I just have a lot of uh, period swords. <laughs> hanging around and daggers and stuff like that so i just got one of those and said, okay this will work uh, so i took the photos with that um and uh releasing it on publication day as a kind of celebration of sorts was a really really special experience and i cannot thank jacqueline enough um it, it was just it, it was incredible i've never done cosplay before so uh when people were messaging me saying oh my gosh it's a great cosplay I was like okay that's great <laughs> um so uh but but it was it was so exciting um and um I still have the dress uh I my mother is trying to convince me to have it framed like a, as a huge art piece <laughs> I don't mm. know where I would even store that or put that because it's huge but we'll it would see. be perfect though <laughs> yes just perfect. Um, so what other projects are on your horizon? I am working on way too many things. Um, I am, of course, working on the novel that I was working on at my master's program, which is um, adult literary fiction uh, and very different from One for All. Um, I am also working on a few different young adult projects. Uh, of course, the sequel to One for All is always on the, you know, on the back of my mind, but it's not one that I'm currently working on. Um, I think that um, one, one project that I'm very excited about uh, is YA fantasy, um, and it's another chronically ill main character um, who has chronic migraines like I do, um, but it's and, and of course it has swords and fencing in it, but it's really about monsters and redemption and who gets to decide whether or not somebody is redeemable. And even if they want to be redeemed and they're not redeemed, what at the end, what does that look like? What happens afterwards? Uh, and it's also about sisters and grief and it's a lot darker than one for all, but it's been a lot of fun to write, and I hope that it is a book on shelves uh, at some point in the next 
three or four years because who knows with publishing and timing everything is every you never know with timing with publishing but hopefully it's a book one day um as we move uh towards wrapping things up here um I want to thank you uh, before uh, I forget uh, for taking time out to to speak with us. Um, there's a lot to be excited about with uh, One for All, and uh, um, I really want to encourage my listeners to look for it. Um, you mentioned B. Dalton, uh, Goodreads. Uh, I know it's available on Amazon, and uh, uh, go out there, read it, and um, uh, share it. Uh, because it is a story that you will enjoy and um, uh, will uh, inspire you maybe a little bit too. Um, what message, uh, Lily, would you give to aspiring uh, creatives uh, who have disabilities uh, and just uh, young writers in general? Um, what would you tell them? I think that for disabled creatives and disabled writers, <laughs> I think that I, I would say, um, I know, and I know I, 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 in terms of, I think that, you know, as a larger, we know, as a larger, you know, like we, we know what we're, what you're going through and it's difficult, but there is, there, there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, as somebody who was on submission with various novels for over three years, I can say that. Um, also, um, I would say, you know, even if you don't have many disabled friends um, in person, um, try to find disabled creative friends online because they, re they really are a wonderful resource. Like I said, with disabled kidlet writers, and with this, the smaller group of disabled writer friends that eventually form disabled killer writers, um, it's really nice to have other people who understand and whom you can vent to and they can listen to you and will know what you're talking about. Um, I think that in terms of uh, for all writers in general, I would say, um, don't listen to any of the writing rules that you were told at all. Um, cue, cue the sound of English teachers everywhere screaming at me. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I think that, you know, one of my most loathed pieces of writing advice is that to be a writer, you must write every day. And that is so ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, because it's ableist, it's classist, it's, it's, there's so, it's so many, so many reasons why it's wrong, but also it's just, you're a writer if you write every day, you're a writer if you write once a week, you're a writer if you can't write for months, you're a writer if you've written, like, it, it, it does not benefit anybody to gatekeep the title of writer. So I would say don't don't listen to anyone who tells you that you have to write every day to be a writer, because I was told that so many times and it felt really discouraging, especially as somebody who is chronically ill. I can't write every day. Like I physically can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, just to ignore that. Um, and I think that. Also. Um, 
try to remember at every process, at every point in the process, the joy um, and to celebrate every point in the process and every goalpost in the process. Um, because it's very easy to just kind of go, oh, I'm agented, just gonna focus now on, you know, getting published. It, it's, it's really important to celebrate every step um, because uh, I think that, you know, I'm incredibly lucky and um, I am in a place where my book about a chronically ill girl is on shelves. And I, I mean, you know, it wasn't too long ago when I was on submission and I was being told that there wasn't a place for this book. So I know how lucky I am. Um, and it's, and I know how important it is to celebrate every one of those moments because I know nothing is guaranteed. Uh, Lily, uh, where can people find you uh, on the social networks? Right, so uh, everyone can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Lily Lanoff. One of the benefits of having an unusually spelled name is that nobody else has that handle um yeah um on facebook um i'm at official lily Lanoff. um and i think that's it for social media um also my website um which is www.lilylanoff.com um and i keep um, my website and my socials updated with any new book news, any new one for all news. Um, like for example, recently, um, I got to announce that one for all is being published in the UK. So, and that's going to be on February 7th, 2023. So that's very exciting. So I keep everybody up to date about stuff like that. If there were news about other formats of one for all that aren't book form, I would also inform people on my social media channels. <laughs> Excellent. And that's go all I can say about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go out and follow her. Um, woman of Letters, uh, Fencer, um, Lily Lanoff, it has been such a joy to talk to you. Uh, the name of the book is One for All. Uh, seek it out at your earliest opportunity. It's a great read. Lily, thank you so much for joining us on View from the Back Row. And thank, thank you again so much for having me. It's been such, such a wonderful opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you. And um, hopefully uh, maybe down the road we can get you back on uh, as things uh, develop. Um, so uh, <laughs> thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on View from the Back Row. I'm Steve Sykes. And uh, as we always say, we'll see you in the front row. Thank you for listening to View from the Back Row. Have a question, a comment, or a request for a future episode? Contact us via email at backrowview at gmail.com or look for View from the Back Row on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or nprillinois.org.